Hi, everyone. My guest today is Chris Taylor, a very experienced test pilot who has written a book called Test Pilot. And thanks for joining us, Chris. Absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. Wonderful. And uh, I understand that you've flown over 400 different types of aircraft. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah, 400 different types or variants, uh, which is which is pretty rare these days. There aren't that many different airplanes and helicopters to fly these days. So uh, it, it marks me out, certainly in the UK, uh, as quite a rare beast. That is phenomenal. You know, when I first read that, my thought was, what does your logbook look like? Or how many logbooks do you actually have? That's got to be amazing. Well, <laughs> actually, I just keep adding pages to my logbook. And I, and I think... It's now about four inches thick. Um, oh my gosh! I, I, I got a Navy logbook uh, many years ago, as you as you will have read. I'm a Navy pilot, or was a Navy pilot, and the Navy gave me a very you know substantial logbook that was about an inch, inch and a half thick. Um, but it's a properly bound book, you know, like a good old fashioned book. So I was able to buy. Um, other logbooks, you know, with the same pages and take them to bookbinders and they've just added more pages in. So I've had that done twice now and my book is literally, it's about four inches thick. And I, I think maybe I'll have to give up flying when I use up the last page. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can go through the process of putting uh, another hundred pages in there, but it, it, it's a thick book. That is phenomenal. And uh, you did share that you were a Royal Navy helicopter pilot, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that's how I, I started out. Uh, mad keen to fly when I was younger. Um, determined that for me, the most exciting job would be flying for the fleet air arm. And um, I homed in on the job of flying the WASP helicopter, which uh, I, I've, fl I've flown uh, with a lot of American pilots. I, I did a, a detachment with, uh, well, two different organizations where I met up with a lot of different American Navy pilots, they couldn't believe what the WASP was like. You know, it has no engine covers on the engine. It looks like something from, uh, I don't know, the 1930s, really. Uh, it's really bizarre little aircraft. But yeah, I flew that operationally and um, it, that, that got, my, uh, got me going, as it were. And then I went from flying that to the, the Western Lynx helicopter, much more advanced, much more capable. And then from that went to Boston Down and became a test pilot. Can you share with us how you initially got interested in aviation? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think it's sort of two or three things, really. Um, my dad, my father, he was um, 18 at the beginning of the Second World War, World, World War II, and he joined the Air Force as soon as it started. And he ended up, he was already a clerk, he, but he, you know, doing doing sort of admin stuff. And he ended up doing the admin for two very famous um impressive fighter squadrons he was originally treble two squadron which had a very infamous war record during the, the battle of britain um he then moved to 65 squadron flying american mustangs mark uh, threes and mark fours and um they sported the uh, market garden battle of arnhem did a lot of stuff in france belgium holland uh, immediately after d-day uh, and a lot of my dad's stories were from that period you know he had some really exciting stories um anecdotes funny tales whatever you want to call them i mean every sunday lunchtime it was listening to him tell us yet another you know scary but exciting and funny story um and we used to holiday on a, a little uh, island in wales very close to our valley which is where they did a lot of the basic training so we had nat full and nat fighters trainers and uh, lightning jets and whirlwind helicopters flying over our head every five minutes when i was on holiday so 
those two things and then a love of airfix models and balsa wood airplanes all of that really just all came together so that as long as i can remember i wanted to be a pilot basically so it was never for you it was never in doubt i mean flying was going to be your career your passion right well it, it it was it was definitely my passion and um i mean you just mentioned before we came on air that uh you're a pilot i think anybody um you know that wants to be a pilot you know go for it definitely go for it you know go 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 head for health leather and do it but um you know as we know it's expensive and certainly in the military we call it in england the chop rate you know the, the number of people that don't make it through to the front line is is quite high a number of people just don't make it they're either not selected or they fail aptitude tests or they fail a medical or they fail various parts of their training um so I was aware that it was my aspiration, it was my burning desire and ambition, but I knew there was going to be uh, a challenge to get there. It's not, it's not everybody that can make it, for sure. Absolutely, yep. My guest is Chris Taylor. He's written a book called Test Pilot. It is an excellent, excellent book. And uh, I'd like for you to share with us, Chris, the transition from being a military pilot to a test pilot. What what inspired you, you know, to take what, what a lot of pilots would think are a lot of risks, testing aircraft, pushing them to their limits, and how you went from being a military helicopter pilot to a test pilot who can basically test virtually anything. Yeah, it's 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 a learning curve. There's no doubt about it at all. And um, so I, I think for me, I even as a youngster, even um, you know, growing up, I was into engineering stuff, whatever you want to call it. I built models out of Lego. I built models out of Meccano. I um, when my dad had a car, I. I wanted to put spotlights on it and, you know, I used to wire, wire in all sorts of dodgy, illegal wiring things around the house. You know, I was into sort of tinkering and, and just engineering generally. And, and as soon as I'd got my pilot's license at 17, I was already, I mean, it sounds very pompous, but I was already thinking about, gosh, wouldn't it be marvellous to be a test pilot? And, you know, I mean, I mean, American test pilots, Chuck Yeager, you know, Mac 2, Speed of Sound, movie of the right stuff where you see these guys doing that kind of incredible um you know world beating world-class flight test in the 50s 60s it, you know that was kind of in my dna and um i did engineering at university because i thought that would be helpful it turns out it wasn't very good at electrical engineering <laughs> certainly not academically i found that a bit of a challenge far too much maths but um you know as, as i went on as a wasp helicopter pilot and lynx helicopter pilot Again, that you know that seed had been sown. I'd already got that kind of interest, and um, I, you know, the challenge in the UK then is, you know, how do you get from being a military pilot to being a, a, a test pilot? And the selection process is incredibly awesome. It's not easy. And um, the Empire Test Pilot School at Boscombe Down take literally a handful of people every year and that's a handful of people across all three services uh, disciplines of fast jet heavy aircraft helicopter so you know for me when i was applying there was basically one slot one vacancy each year if you were lucky and um i applied i went to the interview process um but i have to say in the 12 months leading up to my interview i did a huge amount of research and I came out to America um, I visited Bell helicopters I had a day at NASA having an awesome day learning how to be an astronaut that was fascinating and I you know did an awful lot of stuff just to make sure that when I went for interview 
I knew as much about aviation flight tests as anyone could. And, and thankfully, it paid off. I was selected. And in 1994, um, I attended the, uh, the Empire Test Pilot School and did, did the training and graduated as a test pilot. Yeah, so it sounds like you came in extremely well prepared for that interview. I did my best. You know, I'm one of these guys. Um, I mean, you've read my book. And, you know, I, I was just saying to somebody this morning, you know, I, I'm not only am I a pessimist, but also, I'm also unlucky. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I meet a lot of optimists who are lucky and they and they they don't really worry about anything and they seem to land on their feet and everything seems to work out. My, my track track record in life and in flying in particular has been the reverse you know it, things don't work out easily you know it wasn't easy for me to get a pilot's license it wasn't easy to get my wings and it wasn't easy to become a test pilot you know I had to put a lot of work in um, and you know when I wanted to be a test pilot you know once I sort of set my goal and, and my target on doing that then I just went for it, you know, uh, uh, and I put the work in and I, and I did a lot of research, a lot of reading. I had to, my maths hadn't been particularly brilliant at university. So I spent hours and hours and hours every evening going through these sort of DIY, help yourself, you know, learn maths books so that I could ensure that I passed the maths test when I went for interview. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's not easy. But, you know, if you want to do something in life, then it, then it's worth making the effort, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand about aviation, that there's a lot of reading and a lot of studying involved, no matter what you do in aviation. Absolutely. Definitely. E you know, even just as a private pilot, you know, you've really got to you know, know about your airplane, know about the weather. You've got to know the rules and regulations. And, and, and before you go flying, you know, you've got to plan your route, plan what you're going to do. I was, I, I'm, a, I'm an instructor. I'm an examiner as well. And I, and I was I was teaching a guy who's uh, he's about 70 years old now. And um, I was explaining to him that, you know, none of us um, can cope with the workload of flying if, if, if we're not prepared. You know, you've got to try and reduce your workload in the aircraft as much as you can. And that right. means, you know, reading the checklist, knowing the limitations, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you've got to be on top of it. Um, yeah, it's not easy, but it's a lot of fun and it's incredibly rewarding. Absolutely. It's the best thing I've ever done. And I think most people that fly would, would agree with that statement. It, it's kind of hard to top flying, isn't it? Uh, there's nothing better, is there? I, yeah, I mean, that's right. It, 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 there is nothing better, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean certainly, certainly as you get to my age anyway, put it like that, there's nothing better. <laughs> there you go. So uh, I'd like to talk about the book. The first chapter starts off with a Boeing uh, Stearman. And yes. uh, in it, you're testing, you know, we kind of jump right into the cockpit with you. And and you're testing a I think it's a wing walker a strut or or apparatus on the on the aircraft. Share with us the experience that you have during that initial test flight with Fred, your yeah. unwilling <laughs> unwilling passenger. Yeah, it is the opening chapter of my book. When I was sort of thinking of um you know a good story to start with that would just capture the imagination, whatever your background, whatever your discipline. I thought this is a story that you know, we can relate to, anybody can relate to. So, and actually it was, it was, an, it was another typical day in my life as a test pilot. I was working for the UK Civil Aviation Authority, the regulator, uh, like the FAA in, in America. And I was um, suddenly uh, collared, um, I, I got an email or a phone call saying, you know, you need to be at this little grass airfield because somebody wants to, um, 
uh, get approved, certify a new rig that will go on the top of a Boeing Stearman, a big World War II biplane. And um, the idea is that um, not they won't just take people that are um, expert at this for air shows. It will they will be able to take fair paying passengers who will pay them money and then they'll get on the wing before takeoff. They'll strap themselves to this metal frame. The aircraft will take off, go flying, and um, you know they will get to, to do that experience. So you need to go and test it. I mean, oh, okay, <laughs> here we go. Another, another typical job. So I turn up at this airfield um, and I'd obviously done a lot of preparation beforehand and I talked to the people and we'd worked out what we needed to do. And I, I looked at everything and did all the paperwork and I looked at this rig. And the first thing I did was test the airplane um, with just the metal frame on the wing, just to make sure that that in itself didn't degrade the handling qualities, didn't make the aircraft more difficult to fly or anything like that. And um, I also was able to then sort of benchmark the performance of the aeroplane uh, and get a good feel for its rate of climb, take up performance and so on. Then, of course, we have to test, is it actually fit for purpose? Is it going to be able to cope with putting somebody on the wing? So, uh, as I said in the book, you know, we cast around for willing volunteers, but needless to say, <laughs> they, there weren't any forthcoming. Right. So um, <laughs> we had we had preempted that possibility. And uh, we basically stolen a mannequin uh, dummy from a big department store and um, we called him Fred. So we bolted Fred to the, uh, the aircraft and I set off again and I started to repeat the testing I'd been doing um without fred and we you know we did all the same things i checked the climb performance and the stall speeds and all the stuff you would expect and the final test was i had to go to the aircraft's top speed the vne as we call it the, the never exceed speed and uh boeing stearman if anybody's seen them they are quite sort of big chunky cumbersome looking biplanes i mean they're beautiful to look at invariably there are sort of sky blue and yellow in in u.s navy or army colors and um that's what i was presented with and i climbed this airplane as high as i could go and then basically i had to dive to get to this you know very high or relatively high speed so i did that i climbed up to about four thousand feet or so and i started diving down uh, towards the ground and the, you know, the wind was getting you know, stronger and stronger and I'm getting scrunched down in my cockpit even though I had a helmet and a visor and all of a sudden whoosh you know, something happened I thought blimmin' heck you know what, what was that and I say blimmin' heck actually they were not my first uh, first <laughs> more, words more colorful <laughs> language was used right uh, a more colorful uh, series of words <laughs> definitely was used right uh, which I find in aviation is often the case you know when something bad happens dare I say however much you go to church and however good a dad you are looking after your kids these words just come out you know they just slip out and right. whoosh this thing went over my head and I had no idea what it was and I, I obviously I'm looking up um and it was a kind of blur and I and it was you know I didn't really work out what it was um and I sort of pulled out the dive sorted my life out you know as I always did slowed everything down and looked up to see Fred and Fred was legless. He'd lost a leg. <laughs> so, so this this item going over my head and missing my head by about six inches was in fact his uh, his leg, one of his legs. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, 
this has to be a first you know i mean what what's in the manual about this emergency you know your your wing walking mannequin has lost a leg um but i did all the right things i checked my airplane still worked the rudder still worked you know there was no damage as far as i could tell and uh, i landed back where i took off from and, and thankfully i'd got all the information i then needed i didn't have to go flying with a legless fred uh, again so that that was good um so yeah that's my first chapter in the book and i talk about i mean i i flight tested a lot of steermans over the years i mean uh, you know beautiful airplane to fly in many respects um and i tell a story of another steerman i flew in ireland again and then it's just a different contrasting story different um, environment bad weather flying in a, a situation i wasn't familiar with and, and the challenges that threw up as well yeah absolutely and the steerman of course is an iconic aircraft um and and you've had quite a lot of experience in them flying them you later in the book talk about gyrocopters and those have always fascinated me. Can you can you share with us kind of your experiences with gyrocopters and and how they how they fly? Because I think it's it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. No, um, I was um, you know I joined the UK CAA um, as an aeroplane test pilot. I mean, my background was helicopters. I qualified as a helicopter test pilot. I then became through ETPS a fixed wing test pilot. I joined the CAA the regulator as a fixed wing test pilot but I hadn't been there long when I got this tap on the shoulder from my boss and he said Chris you need to be a gyrocopter autogyro test pilot I went oh okay uh, it turns out I didn't realize this at the time it turns out everybody else in the CAA had walked away from gyrocopters uh, and given them a very wide berth shall we say the the accident record in the UK and we're now talking about 20 years ago, um, their accident record per flying hour was about 10 times as high as anything else. You know, oh, wow. you're 10 times more likely to die in a gyrocopter than you were in an aeroplane or a helicopter or a home build or a microlight, you know, you name it. Wow. And um, so, you know, not, not daunted by that uh, prospect, I sought out one of the guys in the UK who was an experienced instructor, um he'd been flying them since he was a youngster his dad had flown them and uh and i had uh, the bug had been kind of i kind of caught the bug through that bond movie sean connery you know you only live twice where yeah he, um you know he has to to do a reconnaissance over a volcano and he, he phones up q turns up with this thing in a box he goes flying lots of bell 47 helicopters attacking with machine guns guess what he survives and 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 for me you know as a youngster i was a teenager at the time when i watched that i thought wow that's interesting so and it was i so i i learned how to fly gyros and um having learned how to fly a two-seat gyro i then found myself flying a single seat gyro and if you read my book, you can read all about, I mean, just the experience of learning how to fly gyros was exciting. I mean, they are challenging aircraft in their own right. And obviously, I was flying these things 20 years ago. Um, I was flying some quite um, quirky home-built versions of gyrocopters. And, um, but, it, 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 you know, it was good. It was good that the CAA, i.e. me, uh, started to engage with this whole community in the UK that up until then really hadn't had any um, kind of love and attention from the regulator at all. It, it, it had been the reverse. And um, but how did gyros fly? And it, it, you know, it's interesting. Since I've been um, since I've written my book, I've I found myself engaging with a number of different communities, and um, the gyro community worldwide are still 
a, you know, a challenging community to engage with because they are a relatively small community mm-hmm. and they're flying something that some people think flies like a helicopter, but it doesn't. Some people think it flies like an aeroplane and it doesn't. <laughs> you know, it, it flies like a gyrocopter. And I think some people are a little bit dismissive of that whole community, which, which is unfair. I mean, it is a, you know, it's an interesting aircraft in its own right. It, uh, and these days, in, certainly uh, in Europe uh, and in the UK, they are, there are some very good factory-built designs of gyrocopter now available. You know, there are, there are factory-built. They, they have, I mean, I, I was responsible for testing them in the UK, um, and they have good flying qualities. They are relatively safe and relatively easy to fly. I mean, they're still flying on a Rotax engine, but like any single-engine aircraft, the engine might fail. Um, but again, in a gyrocopter, you it is the safest aircraft type to have an engine failure in, in many respects. If you're in the cruise in a gyro and you lose an engine, uh, as long as you do what you're trained to do, you can land in a field two or three times the length of your auto gyro. Now, you can't do that. You can't do that in an aeroplane. No. Uh, and you struggle to do that with a helicopter, to be honest. Um, you know, if you're going to land a helicopter without the engine, you normally run on at, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. So to be able to do, to land in the gyro um, and, and pretty much stop, you know, within a few, a few yards, that's quite impressive. So it means you could survive landing in a, a pretty rough field and a pretty short field and, and so on. Um, but how do they fly? Well, um, I put in my book that if anybody tells you they know how gyros fly, then they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Because if you if you go to your library, it doesn't matter where in the world it is, or you Google it, you know, you say how do helicopters fly, you will find thousands of books. You know, literally thousands of books. If you want to know how airplanes fly, you will find tens of thousands of books on how they fly. If right. you want to find a book about gyros, what you will find is books written by gyro pilots that tell you how they think they fly and how they think they work based on experience. Uh, you will not find huge mathematical, theoretical books by aerodynamicists about order gyros. Uh, but most most um, probably because gyros were around in the 1930s uh, by the time we got to the Second World War, the Germans, the Americans, you know, Sikorsky, Ivor Sikorsky, uh, Bell, they were all building helicopters. You know, we, we, we use the gyro as a stepping stone to the helicopter, which is arguably much more useful, you know, because it can hover and, and the ordered gyro can't. So, um, so the gyro is it, kind of in a bit of a time warp, really. It, it's, it's ended up being a very popular recreational aircraft, but, but hasn't had a huge commercial success uh, for, for a number of reasons. And, uh, uh, but in, in a nutshell, it flies a bit like an aeroplane and it flies a bit like a helicopter, but it doesn't fly exactly like either. That would be the summary. Excellent. And, and, and so learning to fly when you have to kind of unlearn what you know about fixed wing and unlearn what you know about rotary wing, right? Yeah, yes, you, sort of. Yes, you do. You have to apply the relevant bits of what you know and be very careful not to do something wrong. And, and the classic situation would be uh, the, the engine failure after takeoff. So if you, as an aeroplane pilot, have an engine failure shortly after takeoff, 
you know, you're climbing, your speed is relatively low, you're relatively close to the ground. It is essential, as, as you will know as a pilot, you have to push the stick forward. Yep. You've got to get the nose down, otherwise you'll stall, you'll spin, you'll crash, you'll die. You've got to get the nose down, you've got to keep your airspeed, and then you've got to find a field in front of you, uh, and, and that's essential. Right. In a helicopter, if you have an engine fairly shortly after takeoff, then it, what's most important is keeping your rotor RPM. And if you push the stick forward on a helicopter, you reduce your rotor RPM. You, if you bunt, you get low G, your RPM reduces, and then you'll end up crashing. You'll end up with a very heavy landing. So in a helicopter, the last thing you do is push the stick forward. So what do we do with the gyro? Because uh, it's a bit like a helicopter and it's a bit like an airplane. Well, speed is essential. If you do not have airspeed in the gyro, you will die. So the first thing you have to do is push the stick forward. But as soon as you push the stick forward, your rotor RPM decays because it, it has aspects that are just like a helicopter. So you push the stick forward. That's that's the good news. You know, you're now pointing at a field in front of you. But initially, your RPM is less than it was before. So now you've got to be very careful when you get close to the ground that you flare appropriately at the right time and the right amount to get that RPM back just in the nick of time to allow you to land. Which, which with, with training is absolutely fine, it's absolutely doable, but you could easily, as an aeroplane pilot or a helicopter pilot, do the wrong thing in an auto genre. Wow. So it's, it's a lot of training and a lot of um, practice, it sounds like. It's training and practice and, and really, you know, understanding, you know, the differences between them all. Um, but otherwise, I mean, a gyro has an engine like an aeroplane. It has a rudder on the back like an aeroplane. It has rotors a bit like a helicopter. Um, but helicopter pilots are used to the rotors pretty much staying at the same rotor speed, and then they change their thrust and lift by changing the pitch on the blades collectively, and they use a collective lever to do that. Mm-hmm. The gyro really, really, you know, blows their minds because actually it's a bit like one of those toy um, radio control helicopters you get, where actually you vary the thrust by varying the the rotor speed. The pitch on the blades is fixed. Um, and you vary your thrust with, with rotor speed itself. So, you know, for helicopter pilots, that's a bit of a mind-blowing concept. And, and a lot of things you think would work in a gyro uh, aren't quite the same as you would expect. Um, so it, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I have loved learning how to fly gyros. Um, I, I flew one last week to renew my gyro qualification. Um, I'm one of very few people in the world, really, that does flight test in autogyros. So it's, again, a very sort of small niche uh, part of what I do. Yeah. And, and your book, I feel, does a good job of bringing awareness to, you know, number one, what autogyros are and what it's like to fly them. I, I think it's uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that part of the book. You've also flown warbirds. Can you share with us some of your experiences flying various World War II era aircraft? Yeah, indeed. Fascinating. And what a privilege, really. Um, But I'll tell you, the challenge as a test pilot is that we, you know, most pilots that are flying warbirds are usually doing it either for their own personal recreational benefit. You know, if you've got two million dollars, two million pounds, you know, why not buy a Mustang? I mean, I've just watched the Top Gun uh, Maverick movie. Right. Uh, Tom Cruise flies his own Mustang. I mean, wow, you know. Um, sadly, I'm not as good looking as Tom Cruise and nor do I have his budget. So <laughs> Likewise. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't own my own Mustang. Um, I would if I could. But um, so I was testing them 
um, on behalf of the UK CEA, and and obviously in the UK there are a lot of warbirds. Um, we we've been. Um, I think quite good. I think I think the states, uh, the UK, maybe New Zealand, you know, are the, are the three places where you might go to find a lot of uh, warbird activity. Um, but in the CEA, we had to ensure that these various aircraft that were being rebuilt, often really from you know a handful of bits found in a, a boggy marsh or you know a handful of components that had been underground for decades, you know, we had to ensure that they'd been built and and come to a sort of safe standard. So I would have to advise and ensure that all of these aeroplanes were tested satisfactorily once they once they were, you know, refurbished, rebuilt before they could get a permit, uh, then they had to be tested. And, and some of that testing, I would um, need to be involved with in order to keep my expertise going. But I would be the first to admit, if you've read my book, um, I, I, ho I hope you, you read between the lines that I'm not an egotist i'm not one of these arrogant pompous guys that goes you know get out of my way i can fly a spitfire that you know i'm not going to do that i mean these things are worth two million quid two million pounds two million dollars you know I, i'm not going to do that but i have to ensure that the people that are flying them do know what they're doing from a safe flight test point of view and in fairness in the uk a lot there are some good pilots out there but they don't always know what the CEA needs in terms of flight test. They don't know the data that we need. We don't know the comments we need. They don't know and understand the reports we need. So I would spend a lot of time briefing these people, talking to these people, and where it was sensible, I would take part in the flight test program. So uh, along the way, I flight tested a, a two-seat Spitfire. That was straightforward because I could fly with another pilot between us. Um, we were, you know, we were competent. Um, if you've read my book, you'll see that in the case of the Spitfire, I, I was doing the flying on one particular test. Um, we were part of the test program was to dive to 10% faster than the VNE, 10% faster than the maximum speed, so we could get that approved in the permit. Um, the the guy in front in front of me, he was the uh, Spitfire expert, and he was saying, "Yeah, let's go faster, go faster, go faster. You know, it's all going to be all right. Let's go." And I was going, "There's something badly wrong with this one. This this is not right. You know, the ailerons were floating up, the vibration was too high. I had all those little hairs on the back of my neck standing on end." And uh, I said, "No, no, stop, stop, stop. You know, we're going home. We're not going to do this anymore. Uh, you know, I'm not happy. This is safe. There's something wrong." And anyway, long story short, I got a lot of flack and, and banter when I got on the ground. The engineers didn't know why I hadn't completed the test program. Um, and I insisted we inspect the, um, the, the pressure system, the pedostatic system of the aeroplane. And I, I insisted to do it again and again. And sure enough, as I had suspected, eventually they found a leak in the system. The airspeed indicator was massively under reading. Oh, and we, wow. Had we carried on, we'd have ripped the wings off. There is no doubt, wow. you know, we'd have ripped the wings off. Um, so that was the Spitfire. Uh, I got to fly a, a whole bunch of other stuff. I flew a Sea Fury, which was, as a, as a Navy pilot, fleet air on pilot, you know, iconic airplane, designed in 45, flew in the Korean War, you know, marvellous uh, airplane to fly. And I got to, to fly a Mustang and a whole bunch of other stuff. But for me, it, it was always hard work and not fun because I was there 
to test them for one reason or another on behalf of the regulator. So, you know, invariably that meant I was at a difficult center of gravity. I was, you know, flying them uh, in, in, you know, challenging conditions. So uh, hard work rather than fun, but, but a great privilege to have done it. Yeah, absolutely. It's different when you're flying around as a joyride versus taking an airplane to its limits, right? Or beyond. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the Spitfire I flew, for example, I, I flew it at a fully aft center of gravity. Well, in, in World War II, you know, operational Spitfires flew with a forward center of gravity. They were armed with Browning machine guns and lots of ammunition or cannon with lots of ammunition. So the center of gravity of the aircraft was forward. You know, the guns were in the leading edge of the wings. All, all of the, you know, everything, all the weight in the aircraft, the Merlin engine, everything was forward. Uh, but I was testing them at an extreme worst case. And guess what? The Spitfire is unstable. You know, it's it's longitudinally unstable. It's laterally unstable. Uh, you know, actually quite a handful if you put the center of gravity a long way aft. Um, and interestingly, if you read the notes, um, uh, you know, you can get these uh, reprint, reprinted notes of Spitfires and all these warbirds. Um, and when they were ferrying Spitfires, they put a put a tank in the the rear fuselage, put fuel in the rear fuselage. And there's notes in the in the in the um, the handling notes that says, "Don't let pilots fly this airplane like this unless they're very experienced pilots." And and I know why because the aircraft itself becomes quite difficult, quite twitchy to fly. So yeah, that, that's uh, yeah, it's just part of what's in my book. Excellent. Take us through the process of, you mentioned in the book, iterative testing, which is something that test pilots do. Can you tell us why that's important and how you've applied that in your career as a test pilot? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a discipline hammered home by all the major test pilot schools. So whether you go to Edwards, whether you go to Pax River, um, US Naval Test Pilot School, EPNA in France, Empire Test Pilot School, ITPS in, in Canada. It's the same discipline. And, 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 and it's a core skill, really, which is to be incremental or iterative. You, know, it, you, you, you don't go to the end point uh, first. You, you put together a test program and it's like, you know, I need to flight test this aeroplane. In, you know, I'm doing a lot of spinning of aeroplanes. So, you know, do I do the most difficult spin first? No, I do the easiest spin first. And then little by little, you know, every every next test point is slightly more difficult. You know, a slightly worse ball of weight, a slightly worse center of gravity, um, slightly worse airspeed, whatever's appropriate. I, I, you know, you creep up on the end point and you, you hope that you are, you know, if you only move the goalpost slightly each time, then that will be safe. And eventually, you know, if, if, if you can kind of plotting a graph of kind of difficulty versus the parameter you're testing, then there comes a point where you go, do you know what? That was about as difficult or as challenging as I want it to be. I'm, therefore, I'm going to stop at this point. And therefore, you know, I will then recommend a little bit of a margin on where I've got to so that the operational pilot or the line pilot or the recreational private pilot has a little bit of a margin. And, and that's that's the deal. That's what you write up. The challenge is there are some things in aviation which we call a cliff edge. You know, so you you creep up on it and you're doing ever so well. And, you know, it's just getting slightly worse, slightly worse, slightly worse. But you hit that cliff edge and you fall off the cliff. And it's all of a sudden it's not just slightly worse it's a heck of a lot worse. So, you know, whilst that incremental iterative approach uh, works generally, 
you've always got to have in mind that you never know. You, you know, you just move the goalposts another inch and bam, you know, you could be upside down, spinning out of control. So, yeah, it's, it's an absolutely core discipline, uh, but you have to be aware that there are those cliff edges out there to try and catch you out. Yeah, and the key is to recognize, I guess, where, where that point is, if you can, and either stay away from it or, or proceed with caution, right? I, I, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the point I'm making, the, the final sort of few words in my book, in my conclusion, is I make the point that there is, there's really no substitute for a test pilot that's both well-trained and experienced because, you know, I, I, I've just written a second book about my, um, my time at Boscombe Down. This first book is about my, my most recent sort of 20 years testing civil aircraft, general aviation uh, kind of aircraft. But, you know, I spent 10 years at Boscombe Down. And at the time, I thought I knew what I was doing. Actually, you know, it turns out I didn't. I mean, it was a very good preparation for what I did and the stories that I recount in, in this book, Test Pilot. But, uh, you know, when I reflect on it, I realised I was actually learning my trade. You know, I was walking out to all sorts of military uh, aircraft, uh, jets, helicopters, big aeroplanes, getting on with the job. But, but really, I mean, it was, it was only when I left Boscombe Down that I'd actually learned how to be a competent test pilot. And, and even now, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been doing flight tests now for a long time. Every time I do a flight test in something, I am learning something new. I never walk to an aircraft, whatever, however simple, however straightforward, I never walk to an aircraft thinking, I've got this. You know, I never walk out there going, this is in the bag. I really know what's going to happen. It, right. It, you, it, it, you know, if you do, you're dead. You know, you are, you are going to, you know, you're going to catch yourself out if you're complacent at all your toast <laughs> yeah, yeah that's you, true so it doesn't matter how simple how benign the airplane appears to be mm-hmm. you know i i walk to everything uh with the absolute premise that this is trying to kill me you know this airplane is going to try and kill me mm-hmm. it's going to kill me now it's going to kill me today what can i do to try and mitigate that risk you know how can i uh, be ready for that kind of you know catastrophe that is about to happen you've read my book you you'll see that that's you know i mean catastrophes catastrophes have happened um and thankfully you know that negative pessimistic philosophy uh means i'm still here you know so uh, that's right <laughs> otherwise i probably wouldn't be there's no such thing as a casual pilot right it's something you have to do with with all of your attention all of your focus all of your dedication and as you say be prepared for the worst yeah i i i would i would absolutely say that i mean you know you want i mean you know recreational pilots want to enjoy themselves you want to have fun you want to enjoy going flying i mean you know i mean the weather in the uk right now is gorgeous you know what better to be flying along looking down at the, at the countryside you know taking a passenger flying showing them the sights it's gorgeous but when i do that i every every other second i am choosing the field i'm going to land in you know every other second yeah and and the and the other second when I'm not choosing the field, I'm looking at the gauges on my dashboard on my instrument panel, going, is that oil pressure dropping? Is that temperature rising? Am I confident? Am I actually flying at the right speed? Is that actually the right heading? You know, do I know where the controlled airspace is? Do I know exactly where I am? So, you know, if you're going to if you're going to survive, you've got to enjoy it. But you've, as you say, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be thinking all the time. 
about what you're going to do. And you know, when I say to my, my students when I'm teaching them, you know, the, when the engine stops on a single engine aircraft, the workload is too high. You know, the workload is too high. I, have, I, I read accident reports. I help the UK uh, accident investigation guys. And, uh, you know, time and time again, uh, pilots will crash and kill themselves. And I go, it's not surprising. When the engine stops, if you haven't thought about it beforehand, right. the workload is too high. But if you've got into your aeroplane and you've gone, oh, do you know what? The weather's quite nice. I'm not going to fly at 1,500 feet. I'm going to fly at 3,000 feet. So, you know, instead of two, two minutes to, to choose a field, I've got five minutes to choose a field. And do you know what? You know, uh, I know where the wind is. Oh, and the smoke over there, you know, I, I've updated my knowledge of the wind. I can see it's now from the north and not the northeast. So, you know, you're just constantly planning for the potential failure. And if you do that, when the engine stops, it's, it, it's a no, no drama. You go, ah, I know where the wind's from. You know, I, I know there's a whole bunch of fields down here. I've got plenty of time. All I have to do is tell my passengers to make sure their harness is tight. I can, you know, make sure that I can't start the engine. Okay, right. I can't. Fine, I'll turn the fuel off. I'll turn the electrics off. Uh, you know, once I've made my mayday call and I'll land in that field. And, you know, and I guess what? I've got my phone fully charged in my pocket and I've got a wad full of cash and credit cards in go. my other pocket. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You're ready. Because if you've got a, if you've got a credit card on a mobile phone, then uh, then you can get a taxi home. So you know it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. One of the one of the later chapters in your book, you share your kind of experiences and, and thoughts flying the Tiger Moth. Can you talk a little bit about that iconic airplane and what it's like to fly? Yeah, ti- Tiger Moth's lovely. I mean, it's um, you know, it, again, you know, the Stearman is probably the definitive 1930s American trainer. Um, for us in, in the UK, it's the Tiger Moth, you know, designed in the early 30s. Um, it flew, um, it, you know, I mean, it, it's flown a long time. It flew, obviously, all the way through the Second World War. Tiger Moths were built and shipped everywhere. They were built in Canada. They were built all over the place. Um, they were the definitive trainer, really, in the UK until the de Havilland shipment turned up in the 50s. Um, they are, you know, they... They do what they say on the tin, is a tiger moth. It has a lovely um, gypsy engine that just potters away. I mean, one of the nicest things on a summer's evening is to be sitting in a pub with your pint of real ale with a tiger moth flying overhead. Um, I say that because it's sometimes nicer to be drinking beer than flying. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Less work. <laughs> but it, it's just a lovely sound. And um, the aircraft themselves are, are delightful to fly. Um, but uh, every now and again, people do crash tiger moths. They do kill people every now and again, which is, you know, it's hard to believe because they, they, they're nice to fly. They potter along. They're, they're benign airplanes generally. Um, but like any other airplane, you know, you can't you can't mistreat them. Um, they have no brakes, for example. So if you've read my book, um, you, one of the stories I tell was landing in a particularly um, uh, uh, difficult conditions and um, you've got no brakes you know you have no brakes they're hard to steer on the ground because they don't have a tailwheel they have a little metal skid um, if you're landing on tarmac basically you can't steer because the skid doesn't dig into the ground if you're landing on soft ground you can't steer because <laughs> the skid guess what skids across the ground um, 
you know, you're totally reliant upon the prop wash over the rudder to steer, and that's just on the ground, you know, before you get airborne. Um, so you can very easily get caught out with the tiger moth. And yet, you know, up, up there at two or 3,000 feet on a warm summer's evening, yeah, delightful. Wonderful. Nothing like open cockpit, is there? No, no, absolutely. You, uh, right back with the elements. But, you know, if you open cockpit, uh, you know, I would recommend you wear a helmet. I would yeah. recommend you wear a helmet with a visor. Um, it's a bit like motorbikes. You know, when, when I was um, a youngster, we, we didn't have to wear helmets in the UK and you could ride a motorbike. Um, you know, I mean, that, that, again, Tom Cruise, bless him, you know, Top Gun Maverick racing alongside the F-18 or the F-14 in his fantastic motorbike, you know, with his leather jacket on. I mean, that's a great image, but the reality is in aviation and motorbikes you wear a crash helmet you wear yeah. you wear protective clothing you know if you've got any sense at all really so uh, um and that's true of tiger moths particularly indeed so in closing i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and ask you one more question but before i do is there anything you'd like to touch on that we haven't covered yet no, no not really i mean I, I think um you know for those people that are listening to this and going gosh I, I, what, what one of the things i say in my book in the last chapter is i have read a lot of books by test pilots and a lot of books by pilots, wartime pilots, all sorts of pilots. I'll be honest, I find most pilot books boring, even though I'm a pilot and I look forward to reading them. I've got another book coming in on Amazon this afternoon, you know, but they're, they're quite often boring. And, and uh, I go, why is that? And sometimes it's because they put a lot of stuff in there that really doesn't excite me. They tell me what they did at school, really. They tell me what their parents were like, really. You know, they tell me what their favorite lunch was. Do I care? <laughs> you know, I want to know what, what was it like in the aircraft? Tell yeah. us what you flew. You know, tell us what happened when the engine stopped. You know, don't waste any time telling us what you did when you were five years old. Get, right. get on with the story. <laughs> um, and the other challenge I have as a pilot is I'm very visual. You know, I like pictures. I don't, I don't like, you know, words. So there's lots of pictures in my book. Um, and my, my chapters are all standalone. I mean, you've read my book a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I say this is the book that you can read. You can read it with a glass of wine in your hand, which is highly recommended. Mm. You can read it on a beach. You can, re you can have it as your bedside book. Or you can have it in the loo <laughs> because I don't, I don't, some people, I do it, uh, you know, you've got a book there. Every now and again, you just want to sit sit quietly and read a few pages. Right. And if you do that with a novel, you know, if it's like a crime novel or whatever, you lose the thread. I, I can't remember who the characters are after five minutes. You know, who, right. who was yeah. the bad guy? Who was the, who's that guy here? You won't find that problem in my book. All the, all the chapters are standalone. You can just go, do you know what? I want to read about an order gyro today. And you can read one of my order gyro stories. Or you can read about the steamer, Or you can read about the helicopter. I mean, I did a lot of testing of a Polish helicopter. Really, really, really scary um, helicopter to fly. Mm. Um, we, you know, we drank a lot of vodka trying to calm our nerves. And, uh, <laughs> you know, all of those stories are in there. They, so... It, it, it's not saturated with technical detail. It's a relatively easy read. The technical stuff is there, you know, if you want to read it, but you can skip through that pretty quickly and um, you can get to the bits. You can get to the bits where I was chased by a big American police car. I mean, that was a cracking story mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, it was like one of those big Blues Brothers, big American sedans chasing me and my helicopter down a taxiway. Um, at an airport. I mean, that was a first, you know, all the full thing, sirens, blue and red flashing lights, klaxons going off. Uh, and I'm and I'm desperately trying to get airborne in a very heavy helicopter to get get across the county line to freedom. So 
you know, it's it's an interesting, fun book. Uh, so I would I would recommend it. It's an easy read, but you know, if you're interested in being a pilot or being a test pilot, there's a, a lot of stuff there that I hope will grab your attention and encourage you further to, to you know to follow your dreams. Basically, absolutely. And I, I will say, I literally many times laughed out loud reading your book. And halfway through, I stopped and ordered a copy and sent it to my dad. Uh, he oh, was great. in Florida. Yeah, so so he's enjoying the book as well. And I really cannot recommend the book enough. It's a, it's a very fun read. Your experience is amazing and covers so many, you know, you mentioned other, other airplane books or pilot books. They typically fly one type of airplane and, and, and the story, you know, their stories about my career in this jet or my career in this aircraft, yeah. which, which again is phenomenal, but, but you just have the, I mean, it feels like the entire gambit of, of aviation in a career. Um, what advice can you give to someone who is interested in either learning about flying or becoming a pilot or becoming a test pilot? Well, my, well, my advice would be <laughs> simply do it. Uh, it's not an easy path for anyone, and uh, but do it. And if you like me, if you're wired like me, then you know, do your research. I mean, these days you can Google it, you can find that, talk to other pilots, um, you know, if you if you just want to, you know, if you're a young guy at school, young girl at school, I mean, you know, it's great now that that so many girls are taking up aviation, women are taking up aviation. You know, it's not a closed door anymore. Um, you know, I took my daughter flying when she was 14. She was great. She loved it. Um, she ended up being a teacher rather than being a pilot. But, you know, it was it was good to, to, to show how, you know, how to go flying. So, yeah, do it. Do the research. There's lots of books out there. And go to a local flying school, talk to the people there. People like me love to talk about flying. So you won't find any shortage of people to talk to. You know, don't be embarrassed about asking somebody or ringing somebody up or emailing somebody. You know, just get in touch and say, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think? Uh, it's not cheap to learn how to fly, but all of, you know, anything in life that's worthwhile isn't that cheap, is it? You know, if you, right. you know, if you want to drive a Ferrari, guess what? It's not cheap. So, right. you know, you, you, but I've met lots of pilots along the way that started out with a paper round and they earned some money and then they, you know, did another job in a shop and then they did another job and then they did this and that and worked at weekends and worked in bars and earned money. And then they had a few lessons and loved it. And then they got on the roller coaster. Um, and for the pilots that are out there, the thing about being a test pilot is, I would say, don't be put off by the the academic or the uh, the technical requirements, and don't be put off by um, the the Chuck Yeager kind of image where you have to be kind of almost you know like hewn from rock like a you know a god a god-given thor character yeah because to be honest that the 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 discipline of a test pilot the art of a test pilot is to be able to put yourself in the shoes of a regular pilot and and some of the worst test pilots are the guys and girls who are actually so gifted at flying that they can fly anything. You know, they, they just get in something and fly. They don't find it difficult. Whereas, whereas the key to being a test pilot is to get into something and go, oh, why am I finding this difficult? You know, this is not easy. Something about this is quite difficult. What is it? How do I document that? How do I describe it? How do I write it down? 
And then how do we fix it? So actually the average plus pilot, you know, you want to you want to be able to get into things and fly them, sure, but you don't want to find them too easy to fly. You want to, you know, so for the pilots out there that are going, I'm not good enough, well, maybe you are. That, that's what I'd say. Fascinating. Yeah, it, it sounds like to be a, a good test pilot, you have to have that curiosity to ask why and to keep exploring further or deeper as to why things are happening and what's going on. Absolutely. You've got, you've got to be inquisitive. Uh, you've got to be understanding. You've got to be sympathetic. And in fact, one of, one of the, I've just been chatting to uh, the guy that's writing the forward for my second book. And the, and the really crucial characteristic of a test pilot is honesty and integrity, because ultimately you are the, you know, you're the ultimate honest broker. You know, you get into something and you fly it. And then using your, you know, training, ability and experience, you often, very often have to say to somebody, this is bad. You know, in, in the book, I call it telling a mother her baby's ugly. You know, you never tell a mother her <laughs> baby's ugly. You know, right. The baby might look a bit squished. It might look a bit <laughs> ugly, but you right. would never say that because for a mother, the baby's always adorable, of course. But that's what I have to do. I have to go into a, a manufacturer who's spent billions designing something, or I have to go to a bloke who's built a home built and spent five years building it. It doesn't really matter. And I have to say to those people, I'm terribly sorry. There is something bad and wrong about this aeroplane, helicopter, gyro, and it needs to be fixed. And you have to have integrity to do that. You have to have the, the sort of street credibility, but you have to be seen as a sort of totally honest unbiased you know broker um otherwise they, they won't value your opinion and um you know sometimes the news is good but generally most most aircraft i get into uh, are not perfect for one reason or another and uh, that honesty and integrity is absolutely crucial yeah that's got to be difficult to tell as you mentioned to tell somebody that hey there's a flaw in your design basically right yeah absolutely and and, I, and you know i mean if you read if you read the book about that polish helicopter i mean those guys were such nice guys they had been building this helicopter um hidden away from the russians you know they were an organization that had effectively been under license to build russian helicopters until the um the, the wall came down the uh you know the, the east west wall came down um and they built this this helicopter really ignorant of, of kind of western design standards and things like that and so it, it wasn't particularly good and uh, you know the first time i went out there i had to say look this is dangerous that's dangerous this is really bad they plied me with vodka all night, and uh, <laughs> but I still had to say it was really bad, right. uh, which I which I had to do uh, the following morning. And uh, it, it, but but they were great because they went, you know what? Yeah, okay, we're really appreciative, you know, that you, Chris Taylor, with all your experience, have told us we need to fix this because we now know we need to fix it. You know, if if you don't think it's good enough, then we will we will spend the money, spend the time, spend the energy, and get it better and make it make it fly better, which is what they did. And over a period of three or four years, the helicopter went from being really really quite dangerous to to being acceptable. So, you know, it, it, it's nice when your input into a project has had such as kind of benign um, outcome, really a good outcome. Yeah, indeed, and and I feel that in many ways your job is very rewarding because you do get to make improvements that literally save lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, yes. And I, and I, you know, when I'm teaching on the test pilots and talking to the test pilots, I talk about that, you know, if you're going to sleep well at night syndrome. So, you know, heaven forbid I was involved in a project 
and I assessed an airplane that crashed years later and killed somebody. You know, would I sleep at night if I hadn't done my job properly? And of course I wouldn't, you know, I, right. so, you know, if you, you know, if you're dithering over what do I do? In fact, literally I was swapping an email this morning with a, with a, with a gentleman. Uh, I, I imposed a speed limit on his type of uh, autogyro. And again, actually it's, it's in my book. If, you, if you've read the book, there's an autogyro there called an REF 2000. It's one of the most challenging aircraft of any type in the world I've flown. I mean, it is, wow. you know, at certain airspeeds, high airspeeds, it's very difficult to fly. And um, shortly after doing the testing, uh, I imposed a speed limit on it. And not long after that, somebody crashed and killed themselves. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, could I sleep at night? Had I imposed the right speed limit? Now, it turns out this guy was going, you know, 40, 50 knots faster than the speed limit I'd imposed. I mean, he had really brought, brought bad luck upon himself. But, you know, for a, for, for a few days until I, I, you know, I'd worked out what was going on, um, I didn't sleep. You know, had I done my job properly? Had I been conscientious enough? Had I got it right? Um, yeah, it's a core aspect of, of being a test pilot, without a doubt. Chris, I can't thank you enough for the, for the time today. The book is, of course, Test Pilot by Chris Taylor. It's available on Amazon. I will leave links in the, in the show notes in the description. I highly recommend checking it out. Any uh, last words that you'd like to give us before we end the episode? No, I, I, I would be delighted to hear from people. Uh, you can Google me and, and find my uh, email address online. I run a company called Dovetail Aviation, so you can find me through that if you want to. Um, and, and if people have read my book, I mean, I'd love to hear what they think of it. Uh, if they like it, please leave reviews on Goodreads and Amazon. It seems to be so important, really. Um, but I think, yeah, but, you know, particularly, you know, the, the book is doing well in the UK. Lots of people uh, are liking it, enjoying it. Um, it's got a, I think it's got a worldwide resonance. General aviation stuff is, is prevalent, particularly in the USA, Australia, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would be just nice to get the book out there and, uh, and, and let more people enjoy it, basically. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you have an interest in the life of a test pilot or aviation in general, you should check out Chris's book, Test Pilot, An Extraordinary Career Testing Civil Aircraft. The book contains many more of Chris's incredible aviation adventures that we couldn't get to during this interview. It's sure to make you chuckle a time or two. Links are in the show notes. Now you know.